Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Um, Manuela works at Cal Matters, which is, as I mentioned yesterday, the oh, that's right. nonprofit out yet. And, and this podcast started five years ago now with Manuela's predecessor at Cal Matters. Um, okay. And now she has uh, ably filled the role of uh, reporter and podcast co-host. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for Cal Matters, And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, July 22nd, 2022, we're talking about renting, more specifically the patchwork of tenant protections and safety nets for renters and landlords put in place since the beginning of the pandemic, which, believe it or not, keeps on going with cases piling up. So we've talked about these protections before, but there's been some pretty big developments in this space, from the expirations of some of the protections to the start of new ones we think are worth reviewing. In essence here, basically the patchwork is getting patchier and the differences in the rules are becoming much more vast. What do you mean, Liam? Well, in many places, even apartments covered by the state's protections against exorbitant rent increases will soon be allowed to raise rents by as much as 10%. But in others, landlords have been blocked from raising the rent at all since the pandemic began. So clearly a lot to discuss. And as always, we've got the perfect guests, plural, this fortnight. Who are they, Liam? So we decided to bring on both a tenant and a landlord to talk about the impact of all of these policies on the ground across the state. Our tenant is Camila Miller, a childcare worker in Antioch in the East Bay, who has long battled housing insecurity and this year received rent relief dollars from the state's program. Our landlord is Ari Chizanis, who manages about 1,000 apartments across Los Angeles and who has grappled with the state's rent relief program as well. But first, the most important segment in California housing podcastry, it is... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the zaniest housing story in recent weeks. So what are we looking at today, Liam? As you know, we reward innovation on Gimme Shelter, Mm. particularly in our avocado segment. We love the big ideas for why people say housing is good or bad, and preferably when they use props. What do you mean by props? Right. So longtime listeners, the real gimme shelter heads, as I call them, might recall that our first avocado of the year in 2017 was the woman at a public meeting in Berkeley who brandishes zucchini from her garden to argue against a new housing development. Really? Yeah, so this was before your time, Manuela, but basically this lady argued that the existence of her zucchini was a reason to deny the new housing. The reason was, she said, is that the proposed uh, housing development would cast shade on her backyard garden, thus strangling the zucchini's nourishing sunlight and aiding and abetting the death of its future brethren. Your words or hers? (laughs) Yeah, I'm just paraphrasing here. Wow. Truly an all-time avocado. Maybe this should have been the zucchini of the fortnight. You know, this is why we should have had you around back then for these brilliant ideas. But anyway, back to today, one of the more common innovations we see, particularly on the anti-housing side for some reason, is some sort of poem or song describing why a particular housing plan is bad. For some reason. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) give it to me, Liam. Quote, We say it best in verse, your zone plan could not be worse. To you we plead, rezoning we just don't need. We say no to rezone, just leave our neighborhoods alone. Amazing. Who is this Emily Dickinson of zoning? 
Yes. So these are just a few lines from a three-page, wow, um, yes, a three-page poem written by Anita Anderson, a 63-year-old lifelong resident of San Diego's college area neighborhood. This area is aptly named because it surrounds San Diego State University. What I like about these few lines is that Anita gets right to the point. No to the rezone. That's right. There's no subtext in this poem, just text. (laughs) So what is Anita talking about? Well, this neighborhood is currently undergoing the semi-regular process of updating its blueprint for growth, something similar to what we discuss a lot on this podcast about the state pushing cities to zone for more housing. And San Diego, the city, is pushing the college area to accept a lot more density, namely that the number of homes in the neighborhood should double within the next 15 years. And so to do this, the city is considering proposing things like allowing three, four-story apartments and single-family home areas, which is most of what the neighborhood is now. In some more commercial parts, the city uh, is thinking about allowing nine-story buildings. And Anita doesn't want it. She does not. You know, from my own background in San Diego. Mm -hmm, Your old old stomping grounds. Yes, that's right. Yes. So I know this neighborhood has for a while lamented what they call mini-dorms or homes where lots of SDSU students double, triple, quadruple up or whatever next to the school. So the pushback from her and what sounds like many others is hardly a surprise. Well, thank you to Emily Alvarenga from the San Diego Union Tribune for exposing us to Anita's poetry and our Fortnite's avocado. Yes, thank you, Emily Alvarenga, and also to Anita's inspiration, Emily Dickinson. (laughs) So now on to the main topic of the episode, and that's how tenants and landlords are faring now, two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic. Manuela, you've been tracking all these changes recently. Why don't you start, though, by reminding us what things were first like in March 2020 for housing when the pandemic began? It was a really concerning time for a lot of reasons as it relates to housing Given the massive and immediate economic catastrophe, particularly among low-income workers in restaurants, hotels, and other places that all closed down, there were huge worries that there could be a massive wave of evictions as people were unable to pay their rent. They were worried that an eviction spike would not only lead to a big increase in homelessness, but also the dislocation and moving around further worsening the coronavirus health crisis. Yeah, that was all very front of mind for a lot of people. And so what was the response? So policymakers at all levels of government, local, state, federal, first moved to create a system of protections against rent increases and evictions. None of these ended up being ironclad, but some were pretty close, especially in California, when the court system at the beginning of the pandemic essentially stopped hearing eviction cases. Later on, the federal government, as part of its COVID relief packages, gave California more than $5 billion to pay tenants back rent to landlords. Right. So there's a lot that's happened, and much of this began a really long time ago. That's right. In fact, at midnight on June 30th, after 27 months, the final sliver of California's statewide protections expired for tenants against eviction over missed rent payments. Okay, so what has happened over those past 27 months? Yeah, so let's start with evictions. The state court system just put out a report documenting 36,000 eviction lawsuits filed between July 2020 and 2021 across California. Part of the reason could be that eviction in many places were still legal for reasons outside of that missed rent, like nuisances or health and safety issues. So 36,000 sounds like kind of a fair amount, but how does that compare to like a non-COVID year? 
So it's actually the sixth year of declines in eviction lawsuits. Between 2018 and 2019, that was the last full non-COVID year, right. landlords filed 129,000 complaints, about three and a half times as many. But to be clear, this data is only a partial view of evictions. While these are court-filed evictions, we don't necessarily know their results, and it's nearly impossible to track the many disputes that are settled outside of the courthouse, such as tenants who leave when their landlord first posts a notice or can no longer afford the rent going forward. Okay, yeah, but still it sounds like the eviction protections had you know, quite an impact on the situation, and those billions of dollars in COVID aid from the federal government seemed to play a big role as well, didn't they? Yeah, that's a huge part of this, rent relief. Using $5.4 billion total from the federal government and even more authorized by the state to cover remaining expenses, the state and local governments launched rent relief programs to help people cover missed rent and utility payments. The biggest program was the state's Housing is Key program, which accepted applications between March 2021 and March 2022 to cover up to 18 months of full missed rent in addition to utilities for people who were hit by the pandemic and made below a certain income. Okay. It's been run by the state housing department through a contractor and so far has helped more than 340,000 families pay back rent to the tune of $4 billion. Okay, so we already talked about these big eviction pans, but there are also some court protections tied to this program too, weren't there? So the big protections against eviction over missed rent expired in September of last year, but protections remained for people who had applied to this program, basically telling landlords, if your tenant applied for relief and they're waiting to hear back or waiting to get paid, which many people faced months-long delays, you're not allowed to file an eviction case against them. Okay, and that's what ended June 30th. Exactly. Okay, so I know from uh, both your coverage and from others, this program, while it seems to have certainly given out a lot of money, has not entirely been smooth sailing though, right? No. Since the start, tenants with poor internet access and who spoke languages other than English reported issues getting help. And it's taken tenants, as I mentioned, months to access assistance. Tenant organizations have sued the state twice over this program. The more recent lawsuit alleged that people were getting denied rent relief without a proper explanation or saying they were unresponsive when they hadn't reached out to the applicant, for example, in their preferred language. An Alameda County Superior Court judge ruled this month that the housing department has to stop denying applications, thousands of which are still pending, and suspend as many as 100,000 recent denials while the court reviews their case. Okay, so clearly a lot's still going on here. What else? Yeah, so while the court can no longer stop a landlord with one of these pending applications from filing an eviction, since that expired on June 30th, tenant lawyers say that having a pending application can still be used as a defense in court. But that's hard to prove, especially when getting legal aid is really rare among tenants who are nationally represented in about one of every 10 eviction cases, and even less in some parts of California. And in the most recent twist, the Sacramento Bee reported about 5,000 households who got rent relief from the state were asked to give the money back, sometimes without much of an explanation. Huh. So what is the state saying anything about what's going on with that? So the state attributes those clawbacks to reasons including overpayment, renters allegedly withholding funds from their landlords, and fraudulent activity. 
But the lawyers suing on behalf of tenants say that these retroactive denials are outrageous and unfair because this is money that people have already gotten and no longer really have to pay back. I see. Okay, so we mentioned at the top that a lot of these patchwork of eviction protections that we've been describing that have been in place during the pandemic have gotten even patchier. And I guess this relates to what local governments may be doing. What's going on under the state? Now that the overall state rules have gone away, some cities and counties still have their own. As an aside, there was some back and forth in the legislature about whether or not cities were allowed to institute their own local rules. But now that the state protections have gone away, some of these cities and counties have authorized new rules. Okay, so like where? San Francisco, for example. Landlords are prohibited from evicting any tenant, regardless of income, for non-payment of rent that came due on or after July 1st, 2022 and was not paid due to pandemic-related hardship. However, if that tenant owes rent from before July 1st, they're actually not protected because the state law preempted that. Okay, so this is getting very complicated, and my head, which listeners cannot see, uh, but you can on the Zoom, Manuela, you can see is, uh, is spinning around a little bit. I'm very privileged to, to see <laughs> spinning. Yeah, Liam. <laughs> and you've written about the situation in LA too, like what's happening down there? Right. So both the city of Los Angeles and the rest of the county have their own uh, anti-eviction rules now across L.A. County. Low-income tenants, these are defined as those making 95000 roughly or less for a family of four, are still protected from eviction going forward if they can't pay their rent. In L.A. City, though, these anti-eviction protections apply to everybody still. What about rent increases? So in the city of Los Angeles and unincorporated parts of the county, rent increases are prohibited for apartments that are under rent control. So in the city, that's about three quarters of the rental stock, apartments built before October 1978. And in fact, this prohibition against rent increases in the city has been in place since the beginning of the pandemic and isn't set to expire until a year after the COVID emergency is declared over. This, as we know, is still going on. So as it stands now, still no rent increases for these properties in the city until at least next summer. Wow, and that's three quarters of the rental stock. In the city, yeah. And that's something in my research, uh, that city policy has been the most aggressive in favor of tenants anywhere in the country. Although now some city council members seem to be taking a look at whether they should begin to dial these rules back down. But what if I'm not lucky enough to live in a rent-controlled apartment in L.A.? So there is supposed to be another state law that protects against exorbitant rent increases. This has actually been in place for a few years now, and it limits annual rent hikes in properties that are older than 15 years, so 2007 and older for now, to 5% plus inflation. Okay, so that's AB 1482, right? Yes, and in fact, again, the gimme shelter heads out there will remember lots of discussions about this bill when it became law in 2019. (laughs) So with the inflation that we're facing now, this actually doesn't sound so good. Right. And it is not, at least for tenants. In fact, because inflation is so high everywhere in the state, starting August 1st, landlords will be allowed to increase rent for the millions of properties covered by this law by as much as 10%, which was the maximum complicated when the law was first passed. Wow. So we've got different eviction rules in different places, some places with no rent increases at all, some with double digit rent increases. It's definitely hard to keep this straight. Indeed it is, but you and I are really are trying our best to help people through this. We're trying. And with that, let's get to our two guests. (laughs) 
We are here with Ari Chazanis, who has owned a rental property in Los Angeles County for more than 20 years. Ari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I thought we'd kind of start really basic here to give folks a sense of who you are and, and what you do. And maybe you could tell us how many units you manage and where they are. So we manage about a thousand units and they are primarily West Los Angeles, stretching from Santa Monica to La Brea and uh, south to Venice. Okay, so predominantly in the city of LA, but also some other places like Santa Monica and things like that. Smaller cities within Los Angeles, correct. Well, and what kind of buildings are we like talking massive towers here? Are we talking, you know, ADUs or what kind of what kind of rentals do you have? So for the most part, they range from four units all the way up to about 55 units. But I'd say our average building is probably 10 to 12 units. Tell us a little bit about navigating the pandemic, maybe starting with the eviction laws and sort of where that started and where they're at now and how they've impacted your properties. I think for the most part, the eviction laws, from my perspective, were a challenge in terms of communication and all the different rules from the city level to the uh, county level, to the state level, to the federal level. I felt like you almost needed to take a, a college course in kind of breaking down and analyzing kind of like what you can do, what you can't do, what market this falls under, what market that falls under. And it's still confusing for the most part. Fortunately, we've also, you know, we deal with uh, attorneys all the time that, you know, handle tenant law and we get conflicting information from them. So they're also deciphering it from their perspective. And sometimes it doesn't all match up. And it's frustrating as owners and as managers, because I would say that some of our management clients get frustrated with us, but we're having a hard time still. And we're hopeful that, you know, once the moratorium goes away, things will get easier for us in terms of like our workload. It's, it's been a lot harder the last couple of years. So practically, what does that mean in terms of like dealing with like whether you're allowed to do rent increases or not, or what kinds of evictions, if any, you're allowed to do? Like practically, what does that mean? Just recently, you're allowed to do some rent increases in Santa Monica and West Hollywood, which is ironic because they have much more stringent tenant protections in place. Generally speaking, yeah. Generally speaking, correct. Right. More than the city of Los Angeles as a whole. But they decided when the moratorium went into effect that they were going to go with the state's set of rules and restrictions. And the state expired, as you know. You know so their moratoriums expired. So in, in those markets, we've been able to start raising the rents and you know, we have a little more flexibility, but in LA, not much has changed. Our hands are kind of tied. We're not moving around too much. We also don't want to break any rules. We don't want to be put in a position where we've violated any sort of city or state or even federal law. Have you had to do any evictions during the pandemic? And how has that sort of changed through now? Yeah, we've had to do, I think we did one during the pandemic and it was related to a serious nuisance tenant which was actually blocked by the moratorium. But this case was just, was a really egregious nuisance situation. So luckily we were able to remove that tenant. But for the most part, you know, if a tenant is not paying rent and disturbing all the other tenants in the building, there's not much you can do right now. How long did that take you to get in that particular situation? And if you, if you could give any sort of more details about what that was about, that would be helpful. But how long did that process take from start to finish? You know, I don't remember the exact details. I remember we had one. It took about six months. Did you have to wait until the rules changed or 
how did you get over? We had to get this tenant out. So we were lucky that we got a, we, we had a judge that I think understood the repercussions if they didn't grant us the eviction. That's, you know, I think it was an extreme case. So we got lucky. And, and also I think the tenant didn't respond in terms of they didn't, you know, they have an opportunity to respond to the case. I think they just didn't respond. So they didn't follow through on their end. You mentioned saying that or you indicated that there might have been some tenants who have not been paying rent for some time. Is, has that been the case? Or have, you, have you had tenants who have fallen behind you know, at this point years in back rent? Oh, yeah. We've got a, quite a few tenants. I mean, we have we have a couple tenants that owe close to $100,000 wow. in back rent. Yeah. Singular tenants or in total? Like one or two tenants that owe cumulatively $100,000. We manage some higher end buildings, for example, in West Hollywood, where yeah. the rent is you know in the mid six thousand dollar a month range, and they haven't paid rent for two years or two and a half years, so it adds up really fast. So, what's that like, knowing that you're owed that amount of money and have not been able to collect on it? Extremely frustrating. And then you have to go, and they move out, and you have to go through the uh, process of collecting and which is, you know, going small through small claims. claims. Exactly. And it's just, it's more work for us. Have you interacted at all with the state's rent relief program? Yeah, interacted a lot with them. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, sounds, sounds pleasant from what your reaction was. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually a board member of AGLA, which is Apartment Association of Greater Los Angeles. And we hosted a podcast with Oh, a competing podcast sounds like. No, excuse me, not a podcast, a webinar. Webinar. I yeah, see. I don't want okay. to take away. Good. Yeah, Good I, don't, to I don't host. Right. I don't touch podcasts. Um, <laughs> uh, it was with the woman uh, with the California Department of Housing who was in charge or the liaison because they outsourced it to a third party that was you know responsible for distributing the funds and overseeing the program. We had a, a webinar with her. To be honest, for them, it was confusing. They didn't know who was going to be approved, who wasn't. There were so many, you know, questions about whether they're going to run out of funds or deadlines. I mean, there was a lot, a lot of confusion on the calls. She was very helpful and she was a great guest to have. And she answered a lot of questions from our members at AGLA. But at the end of the day, I think there was still a lot of questions and a lot of things that were, you know, left up in the air. And I want to point out one of those was what happens after the money runs out or when the program shut down in March or April. What happens at that point? There was no answer for that. That was the last question she got, actually, on the webinar. When when was that webinar? I think that was about six months ago. So tell us a little bit about the program itself. How much money, I guess, did you all apply for? What was it like get some of that? Were all those claims successful? Oh, man. It was a really tough process. You know, there was a lot of following up. And they would say to us, the file hasn't been touched. The next person who was supposed to do task number two did not do task number two. So we're going to have to ping them. For two months, these files would just languish for no reason other than there was no, whether they didn't have staff or whether there wasn't any sort of oversight. They hired a lot of employees, from what I understand, independent contractors that just came on board just to kind of help get this money out. They had no experience and there was no like oversight. It was like really poorly managed. We spent hours on the phone following up case on our, you know, all our cases. And about how many cases did you have? I think we had about 60, 50, 60. Did who initiated that? Did your tenants initiate that? Did you initiate that? Or how did, or, or how did that work? Well, you know, for the most part, tenants have to initiate it, but there's some cases where we initiate it and then we encourage the tenant to do it. 
but both sides have to participate in order to get funded. Now I remember the tenant that we evicted. That's another tenant that we evicted was she didn't file her forms. So if, if you could show that the tenant did not file for aid for the housing is key program, and you could show that they didn't do it after repeated attempts and they didn't fall through, that's another reason for an eviction. That was another eviction that we were able to uh, win on over the last two years. And we did everything for this tenant. We filled out everything for her. All, all she had to do was go online and sign a few things or click a few boxes, but she never did it. What proportion of the claims for aid that you all filed would you say were successful? I would say about 90%. Sounds like a pretty high success rate. It was, but here's the thing. I don't know about other owners or management companies. We were really, really like proactive. I don't think if we, if we weren't as proactive as we were, I don't know we would have hit that number. I really don't. I had a direct contact to the woman at the California Department of, you know, I was I would contact her directly, which was great. I mean, if I didn't, I had those resources that I don't know if everybody else has had. And one of the, as you mentioned, the program did stop paying at the end of March of this year. But at least from what I've heard from tenants is many have still struggled to keep up with rent. Were there any cases where somebody paid the back rent but still owes money that the program can't fill in? I haven't run into a tenant that is, and I don't know if this is maybe just my experience, who really had like a COVID excuse, like a legitimate COVID excuse. Going back to that tenant that owes over $100,000, I tried to help him through the process. I actually got in touch with this woman and, you know, his application was for a very high amount. When I spoke to him, he told me that his business was flourishing prior to COVID and then it completely just went from, you know, 100 to zero in a matter of two weeks. And it was a very successful business. And he obviously it was successful because he was able to afford $6,500 a month in rent. Told me about it. We had a long conversation. I said, listen, I'm going to help you, you know, and kept getting denied by housing is key. They kept denying it and they kept appealing it. And he wrote a letter and explained it. And I spoke to the woman at the California Department of Housing and I said, what's going on here? I mean, he told me this story. I, I spent time on the phone with him. You know, we've, I believe him, right? She said, it's just not matching up. We're not finding his facts or lining up with what we see on his tax returns and whatever it may be. So he's a West Hollywood tenant and he owes his rent for May, June and July. We gave him a notice for that. And right away he said, I can pay it. And then we said, you know what? We're not going to take it because we have a very big balance with you. And we'd rather just put a new tenant in there. We just can't you know, move forward with you. And then he offered to pay all of it over $100,000. That leads me to believe there's something, I don't know, an experience like that makes me wonder how many people took advantage of the program. Did he pay it? We're still deciding whether we want to accept or not. We're, it's still up in the air. So I want to ask a little about some of the reason why there has been a talk to a bunch of landlords about some of the concerns about not being able to get back rent or even rents going forward has been cost increases that have come as a result of inflation and other things over the past couple of years. Can you talk a little bit, and if you could be as specific as possible, that'd be great, about some of the potentially rising costs that you faced recently? As you know, everything has risen across the board. Labor, materials, utilities, the city raised RSO fees, which is rent stabilization, during the moratorium, which was you know ironic. Yeah, so the costs have gone way up for us. And there's been no kind of leniency, I guess, for our side, which is tough because we have to continue to maintain the buildings and pay all the fees and the property taxes. And for a lot of people, 
I mean, we have some clients who barely make it every month. So when they have one tenant that doesn't pay rent, I mean, they struggle to pay their mortgage. And then it trickles down to can't hire electricians, you can't hire plumbers. And these guys have nothing to do with being renters. And, the, you know, it affects the entire economy. You referenced the one tenant who you believe was taking advantage of the system to sort of not be able to pay rent for some time. Do you believe that some of the sort of broader concerns, uh, particularly among tenants who were in industries, hospitality and things like that, which were totally walloped right at the beginning of the pandemic and very up and down in terms of what people have been able to get to have put these sorts of restrictions as it relates to eviction protections and rent restrictions there in the first place? I mean, do you understand that and do you believe that there were folks who were legitimately unable to pay during this time? Absolutely. And I'll tell you this, before the pandemic, we've had many cases where tenants couldn't pay rent and we worked out payment plans with them and we talked to them and we, we didn't evict them. You know, the tenant came to us and said, hey, I can't pay rent. Can I pay you a decreased amount and then pay you over time? And we were always very flexible. And that happened in many, many cases. But the moratorium, what it did is, let's say it protected 10% of the legitimate ones. It also gave cover for 90% that were not legitimate. I mean, I think the, the numbers are probably pretty high. I think a lot of them were not legitimate, my experience. We're not in the business of evicting tenants. I mean, we, we want tenants. If somebody comes to us and says, hey, I can't pay my rent for a couple months, we would work something out. We didn't need the moratorium to, I don't know, guide us, if you, if you will. But it's just to push back on that a little bit, I mean, as it relates to the 90% number, I mean, is that number even fathomable, given that the state has paid out close to $4 billion or more in claims that it deemed were legitimate? You know, 90, I don't know, 90%. I'm obviously I'm exaggerating. But, right, right, right. Um, yeah. But look, I don't know. I mean, this, like I said, the state had who they hired to run this program. I don't know what kind of oversight there was. I mean, that's all questionable, right? I want to kind of bring things into the present day. You know, we talked earlier, Manuel and I, in our segment of the show, talked about kind of this patchwork of protections that existed at the beginning of the pandemic kind of now becoming even more patchier, right? Because you have some cases, the LA rules sort of still being very strict, whereas the state rules, as we've discussed, have sort of gone away. What do you think should be the appropriate response now to the circumstances where, I mean, the virus is still going. Many tenants, as well as landlords, have faced significant inflation pressures themselves, right? So, so what should be the rules right now? The moratorium should go away. I mean, we're one of the only cities in the country that still has it in place. Right. COVID's not going away. If you talk to any doctors, I mean, it's going to be with us for forever, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's our new reality, it's, right? So how can you- It's very sad I mean, to hear, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it is what it is, right? But, you know, look, the people I, from what I understand, people aren't getting as sick right now. The ICUs aren't full with very sick people. So- you know, get back to some sort of semblance of normalcy. Extending the moratorium indefinitely is just, is, that's not that's not the answer. And it's just, you know, it's not right for many reasons. You mentioned the impact that having a missed rent payment could have on someone who's depending on it to pay the mortgage. You know, you've said how much of a burden all of these rules and regulations and inability to evict have had. I'm wondering for you, you own so many properties. What exactly, what kind of a, an impact does it have? Could you just be a little more specific about the kind of burden that this has been for your business? I think a lot of people, you know, see, well, you're still able to raise rents and this and that. So I was speaking from the perspective of my property management business. So I have some owners that have one building or two buildings. And then I think what you had said was raising rents. We haven't been able to raise rents for 
over two years in Los Angeles. So you're entitled to raise rents. It was typically about 3% a year in Los Angeles for the last couple of years. So that's been taken away and it's going to end up being three years. So, I mean, you add that up over how many number of units or how many owners there are, it's, it's a substantial amount of money that you'll never gain back due to rent control. But from my perspective, look, if you're a substantial owner, sure, it's not the end of the world, but there are a lot of mom and pops out there. And we have a lot of those mom and pops who are members of Agla. And I've talked to so many of them that are legitimately, they're, they're just as adversely affected in some ways as some of the people who can't pay their rent. And I don't know, I mean, it'd be interesting to run some sort of research as far as were there any foreclosures? Were there any sales that would not have happened otherwise of a property because of this? I mean, there's got to be some data out there that where, you know, the owner has been affected. I mean, it's, it works both ways. Ari, is there anything else that you want to add or emphasize at all or make sure that uh, our listeners understand? I think the most important thing that I want to share is that we're not enemies here. We're housing providers. We want to work with the tenants. We just feel like the government intervention isn't the way to do it. And I think for the most part, if tenants come talk to us, I know me personally, I'm always willing to work something out. I don't know. The moratorium is, is, is what it is, but I'm not really like a big fan of like a lot of government intervention. So, Ari, thank you for your time and for sharing your experiences. We, uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We're here with Camilla Miller. She is a tenant in Antioch who has been going through the COVID-19 pandemic as a renter here to talk about her experiences. Thank you for joining us, Camilla. No problem. I feel like I'm the poster child for um, <laughs> this kind of thing right now. Yeah, let's start off just telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do for work and where you live. I am a teacher now. I lived in Antioch for about 20 years. I got my degree in child development and now I teach. I have a family child care in my home where I have one, right now one child that I care for besides all of my own. Tell us a little bit about the place that you rent right now. What kind of house is it? The house that I'm in right now, to me, it's a nice house. It's like 2,200 square feet. And I use basically the downstairs for my business. And I love kids. I found out on accident by volunteering at a school how much I love kids. And then I went to school for it. And actually, that was the first time we became homeless was while I was in school because my husband was, his business wasn't doing that great. So we couldn't afford to stay where we were. We ended up having to live with my mom for two years. Once we left my mom's, we stayed at a place where the uh, we were there for about a year before the landlord said that they wanted to change the house into something different where they made more money off of the house. So they wanted us out. And so we ended up going to a hotel. We were in a hotel for about seven months while looking for a new place. And because I wanted the my home was going to be the income and because the school would be in the home, most owners, they didn't want the liability. Between that and the fact that we had that eviction and when I was going to school, between those two things, it was super hard. Again, seven months. And I feel like the only reason why we got this place was because I, I talked to the owner and she saw our kids and she couldn't make it anymore. She literally, she couldn't pay her rent anymore. And that's why she needed renters. And we had Shelter Inc. helping us, which was also 
part of the struggle. It was, I'm thankful that they were there. Shelter Inc. is a, a local agency in, here in Costa Costa County. And they sometimes help with the move-in costs and that kind of thing in the first months. But they also have other programs. And we had signed up with a program that was supposed to cover us for a year of rent. They were going to pay for a year of rent. And this was a thing that I was like using to tell like future like landlords, like, hey, you know, sure, we have sure. guaranteed rent for a year. We're going to be covered. Even that, they were like, mm, <laughs> I don't know, you want to do what here? You know, like they just did not want the family child care. This was all pre-pandemic. Thank God we got in here. So those two things made it super hard. And then like I want to say about a, a year and a half after we lived here. So sorry, when did you move in? Roughly what year did you move into where you are now? 2018. 2018. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah, 2018. So then 2019, we had trouble paying the rent and we reached out to another agency. They were ready to help us with two months. But when they talked to the owner, she said she was really nervous that we wouldn't be able to pay after they helped us. So they didn't help mm. us because of that. And which made it crazy. We ended up having to like take out a loan. So it, it's like a detached house with a couple stories or just give us a little more about. It's a single family home. It's a single family home, two stories, okay. four rooms. And you live there with your kids as well. Yeah, my six kids. I carried six. We have, I have three bonus for my husband, but they're older. And so they're not here, but yeah. Can you say what you, what you pay for rent? It's 3000 She kept it 28 for the last four years. But then this year when we were getting help with rent relief and they were taking a long time. And so she raised the rent to 3000 because <laughs> she just, it was just anything, only thing she could do at the time. Okay, so... Can you then talk to us a little bit about what the initial months of the pandemic were like? I mean, it sounds like we had an in-home business. I imagine that might have been affected in some way, right, at the beginning? Yes, it was. Um, I lost a couple kids um, right away. And we ended up not being able to pay rent in April. April of 2020? Yeah, April of 2020. What she ended up doing was taking that month's rent and splitting it into the next six months. So we paid it for the next six months. And then even after that, we had no other hiccups. And then until last year, I thought I was going to need it. So I filled it out. I ended up not needing it yet for the rent relief. And then I filled it out in August. December, they reached out to me saying, hey, we know you filled this out. We need some more information. This is the state rent relief program you're talking about. Yeah. They'd reached out to the landlord and she didn't want to cooperate with them. So they said, well, we'll have to send the check to you. And so... That was December 13th that they approved it. We actually ended up really needing the assistance and we needed it in January. That's what ended up happening. My client that I still had left, she had two kids. So with ERAP- The rent relief program, that's, yeah. Yeah, the rent relief program, yeah. They approved it in December, they- And December of 21, December of 21 you're talking or December of 20? 21. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't able to pay for January rent. So the landlord's like texting me, do you know when they're going to give it to you? Do you know, do you know, do you know? I got it January 21st was when I ended up getting it. And it was so stressful. And like that whole time of being homeless was like crazy stressful. I was pregnant at the time. And so now it's like, around the first of the month, like just this little anxiety just rises up. I swear, yeah. I have like it's like a slight PTSD just from so long, like rent being such a hard thing to do. And like all the times where we barely had it and like had to scrape together to get it. And Camilla, you weren't the only person in your household who was affected by COVID. You had said that your husband also runs his own business. Can you tell us a little bit about what he does and how his finances were also hit? 
Yeah, he does events. So he did events in like Oakland and San Francisco, like all kinds of places, like birthday parties and things like that. People reach out to him. He books the venue and does all the things. And because of COVID, there went his entire business. He went into credit repair. It's really hard to gain a lot of business doing that, like for people to actually do it and then pay it off. So like once COVID hit, it was like any of his income was gone. Thankfully, like what he does has been able to help us. Like our credit is how we've been living pretty much is our credit. It's barely any any money. I knew that I was going to have to do this type of job for a living because I noticed how rent has gone up so much higher than wages that I just knew that just a regular job wasn't going to cut it, especially like with our kids. I don't know what I would do if I had just like a regular job. Everything's so iffy from COVID. Like it's everything's so unstable, I would say. You mentioned the worries that PTSD of having already been homeless. I wondered, and you got some help from the state's rent relief program, but did you ever worry about getting an eviction notice during these past two years? She actually gave us one in, December, in January. Knowing coming, she just did it to do it. And even though like I knew like it, it wasn't going to do anything, it oh man, it's even thinking about right talking about right now, like my stomach's all upset. Um, gosh. And then she found out that she couldn't. Because she was just an owner, she doesn't know all the rules and things. So I found out even us paying like that was illegal. I found out later at a city council meeting in here in Antioch that she wasn't supposed to do that like that, where we paid that six months, where we made that. She chopped that one up into six months. I didn't know that was illegal, but apparently it is. But she does a lot of things that she doesn't know about because she was just an owner. So, How did you know about, learn about the rent relief program to start with? And it sounds like you almost in some ways got ahead of the game in knowing that you may have needed it prior to actually falling behind. Is that right? Yeah. Like from that homeless time, like I was just trying to be ready. I yeah. looked it up, like, you know, rent help at Contra Costa County. And that's how I ended up finding it. So what were you approved for when you first put the application in? You, you didn't know any, any background at all at that point? Not at that point. No. At the point when they approved it, I knew my contract was ending with one of my clients, but I wasn't all the way sure. And then it ended up that ended up happening, but also the state ended up messing up my payment. The kids that I had, the state paid for them. So the mom was getting help through CalWORKs. They messed up and I didn't find out because the way they paid me is like I watched the children for a full month. Then I send them the timesheet the very next month. They have a full 30 days like to pay us. Because I'm used to waiting, I didn't know that uh, like all the way that she was cut off until I called them like, hey, what's going on? They go, oh, she's she's done. And when you were applying then, what were you initially approved for? Oh, 2800 So just one month then, sounds like. At that time, yeah. And like I said, they ended up messing, the state messed up on my payments. And so then I needed to reapply. But they don't let you reapply until it's after, until it's like you're behind kind of thing. I see. And so for February... I was needing it and I couldn't, like, there was nothing. And and my landlord's like, you know, what's going on? I'm like, try to tell her, oh, the state messed up. And she, it's crazy how she even, like, acts like she doesn't know, like, what's going on, COVID and everything. But even still, the fact that she told me, like, it was hard for her in the first place to pay just rent here. 
I even filled out just duplicate applications just to show her that I did again, even though I knew they were going to end up getting, you know, deleted or whatever. I just did it just to show her, look, I'm trying, you know, I'm doing something. And I ended up scraping and finding something to give her. And then we got into March and it was March 10th that they allowed me to ask for additional funds. I remember so vivid because I would always check back. Okay, is it, you know, is it okay? So yeah, it was around then that she raised the rent because she was just like, she wanted to do something. Was that application successful for the rent relief? It ended up being, yeah. For So I applied March 10th and then I ended up getting it like two weeks ago. So it it was rough. Oh my gosh. So rough. Like I said, I'm going to the council meetings now to go for the anti-harassment and, you know, the tenant protections because it's stressful all the way around. Like I said, the fact that wages haven't went up with rent is what's crazy. <laughs> so are you current on your rent now? Or are you behind uh, some more months? So right now I'm current, but I don't have it coming up. Yeah, I don't have it coming up, but hopefully I'll sign up a couple clients But even then, it's like, like I'm in the process, like I've added one, but she's part-time, doesn't do too much. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do next month. And it's not even next month now, you know, like count down the days of 20th, it's like, uh, (sighs) ugh. So I'm not behind yet, but I'm not sure about next month. For keeping up with the eviction protections that you mentioned, sort of that patchwork of laws, how did you find out exactly what was covered and what wasn't? You mentioned a little bit of your organizing work. In my looking for rent help, I found the organization ACE. And I know that they help with tenants, like tenants' rights and like helping you know what your rights are and that kind of thing. And then helping people not get evicted is what they try to do and trying to get these things passed, trying to get these protections passed. But it was my way of like just getting in there, like doing anything that I can, anywhere that I can to try to get help. But yeah, so it's ACE. And I'm also with Child Care Changemakers. They are fighting for people like us where we, you know, a family child cares, there's no health care, there's no retirement. And then the way the state pays us is pretty shady because it's like they'll only allow a certain amount of hours, but they don't allow for the travel times. And then it leaves the bills to the parent. Parent doesn't really have it in the first place either. So we just take the loss. Some of us take the loss. Some don't and charge the parent, but I take the loss. I, I see the struggle and I can't ask you for anything when I see a struggle is my thing. So yeah, I'm with two organizations just to be able to have an insight on, you know, anything that I could do. So I wonder how confusing this process has been for in terms of understanding what the eviction rules are, understanding what the rent relief rules are, given the sort of changing circumstances. It sounds also like in some ways you had to educate your landlord about what the rules were. How hard has it been to kind of keep track of what the protections are and how they've changed over time? It's crazy hard. I, I, I would have no idea of any of it if I didn't like find my way to like ACE and all these other things. Uh-huh. I got to say, like I'm learning about myself that I believe I have ADHD, like what, how adults, the things that I do like line up so perfectly with that, just the anxiety of certain things. And I noticed at the meetings, at the council meetings, like the people that are on the verge of eviction, the places where these things are happening, mental health is like, I feel like is that at the core of it all, just in knowing all these little things and having to work this, like work your way through this system. It takes a lot. And when you have mental challenges, it's that much harder. I don't know how I made it through school the way I did, but I do know that 
those characteristics, there's so many things that with ADHD that I notice about myself. And like I said, like, seems to be a theme with a lot of people that are, you know, on the streets even. So yeah, I feel like there could be some sort of boost <laughs> in being able to have access to good mental care. I feel like would play a big part in this because I have such anxiety when it comes to like paperwork and things and um, it adds to it, you know? I want to ask one other thing. Myself and, and Manuela have talked to a bunch of landlords over the past couple of years who have expressed concern about the fact, you know, because of inflation, a lot of their costs have gone up. And when they're missing back rent, that is hard for them to pay some of their bills, potentially their mortgages. It sounds like in terms of your landlord in particular, she had had some experience with some instability. So in hearing all that, do you have any sympathy for their perspective in terms of some of the difficulties that they may have been dealing with for the past couple of years? The difference is, is when they're out their money, they still have their, their home. And it's like, when we can't, we no longer have a place to be. And with my home being my business, if I'm homeless again, Where's my deposit going to come from? Where's my just income period? Because even if I go and work at a school, I'm going to make anywhere between 16 and, you know, $20, 21 22 $23 an hour. And that's just doesn't make it. That doesn't even make it for, you know, trying to look for a place like I'm all the way out if I can't pay. When they can't receive their money, it's different. Like they're not just out. I mean, I feel bad that they can't pay their bills, but at the same time, they still will have a roof at the end of the day where we won't. Well, thank you so much, Camila. That's all the questions that we had prepared. Do you have any other insights that you want to impart? Mental wellness being like needs to just be a big old, I don't know what you could do with that, (laughs) but there's such a, a need for like care in that capacity that is just not happening, I think. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like our podcast, please consider rate and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and your other favorite podcast services. Our editor is Victor Figueroa. Victor, we appreciate you. Thanks. I'm Liam Dillon. I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Toyas M. Thank you all for listening.